This presentation was given at the Monastic Conference on the Environment, Gethsemane 3. It was given by Father James Weissman. The title of his talk, The World as Created, Fallen, and Redeemed. Yes, actually, I'm quite sure that was drawn by Ajahn Punadamo, and I find that very helpful. Uh, I have neither PowerPoint as the two previous early speakers, nor do I have anything on the board, So, but you'll just have to listen. But I will place this on the wiki, as I hope you will place your paper as well, and, and anyone else giving a presentation, because I think they should be available to us long term. And I am among those, and I know I'm not alone, who haven't yet mastered getting into that wiki. And I know that, um, <laughs> that either Reverend Kusla or Hung Shur are going to give us a little tutorial or maybe a handout that will take us through the baby steps one by one so that we can James, access that. It's easier than that. Uh, Reverend Kusla is proposing that we all get a, a CD with all the talks oh, yes. and all the pictures he's taken. And we'll also have it up on the MID website. Wonderful. That's great. Okay, glad to hear that. Okay. I will also warn you, uh, a few minutes ago, Victoria, introducing both of us, said that these afternoon talks today are going to be theological. And mine will be. I, I don't uh, deny that I am a professional theologian. But if you keep up with a lot of literature outside of theology these days, say political science, you're probably familiar with the fact that the adjective theological is now often used by one political scientist to attack an adversary because it simply means vapid and pointless. <laughs> and uh, I, I hope that at the end of my talk you won't believe that... Uh, that's all that my theology is about. But I, I, will, I will warn you, however, that this is going to be a bit more theoretical than, than even uh, Ajahn Punadamo's talk was. And uh, nevertheless, I hope you'll find it of some interest. Back in the summer of 1995, three other Benedictines, including Brother Aaron here, and I had the opportunity to spend five weeks in Tibet and North India mainly to visit Buddhist sites and engage in dialogue with a number of Tibetan monks and nuns. And I very well remember how on one occasion at a monastery in India, I had just begun a brief presentation of some basic Christian doctrines when as soon as I mentioned our belief in a creator God, many of the Tibetan monks in the audience started giggling. Now, they surely didn't mean to be offensive, but for them, the very idea of a creator of the universe seemed so preposterous that they inevitably and spontaneously found it humorous. And I'm actually grateful for that response because it keeps me from blithely assuming that Buddhists and Christians are simply talking about the same thing in other words. In fact, some Buddhist authors, both classic and modern, have written severe critiques of the doctrine of a creator God. Whether or not there's the possibility of bridging the gap between our true traditions on this point, and that has been suggested in a recent book, that's something we might discuss later this afternoon. I will 
towards the end of my presentation, broach one possible way of bridging that gap. But first, as I was asked to do, I want to present very briefly the Christian doctrine about creation, about the world as created, fallen, and redeemed. And in order to give what I think, and have always for years now found a very clear example of what Christians mean by creation as being brought about and preserved in being by God, I'd like to present another anecdote. This one from the life of one of the most prominent Christian theologians of the past 50 years. By the time Avery Dulles graduated from a New England prep school in the spring of 1936, he was a thoroughgoing materialist. He held that every notion of God was simply an invention of the human mind to explain things that could not otherwise be accounted for. Avery entered Harvard College that fall, still ensconced in what he called a cold, amoral world, governed only by chance and by the selfish actions of human persons engaged in the cruel quest for pleasure. Actually, the sort of thing that Ajahn Punadamo was just talking about. Then, early in the spring semester of his sophomore year, his whole world was suddenly and unexpectedly turned upside down. And here's the way he later described what happened. This is from his book, A Testimonial to Grace. He writes, I was in Widener Library, poring over a chapter of Augustine's City of God that had been assigned as reading in one of my courses in medieval history. On an impulse, I closed the book for I was irresistibly prompted to go out into the open air. It was a bleak, rainy day, rather warm for that time of year. The slush of melting snow formed a deep mud along the bank of River Charles, which I followed down toward Boston. As I wandered along aimlessly, something impelled me to look contemplatively at a young tree. On its frail, supple branches were young buds attending eagerly the spring which was at hand. While my eye rested on them, the thought came to me suddenly, with all the strength and novelty of a revelation, that these little buds, in their innocence and meekness, followed a rule, a law of which I as yet knew nothing. How could it be, I asked? that this delicate tree sprang up and developed and that all the enormous complexity of its cellular operations combined to make it grow erectly and bring forth leaves and blossoms. The answer, the trite answer of the medieval schools, was something new to me, namely that its actions were ordered to an end by the only power capable of adapting means to ends, namely intelligence. And that the very fact that this intelligence worked toward an end implied purposiveness, in other words, a will. Mind then, and not matter, was at the origin of all things. Or not so much the mind of the Greek philosopher Anaxagoras, as rather a person 
of whom I had had no previous intuition. Nor were the operations of this person confined to flowers and foliage. The harmonious motion of the stars, the distribution of the elements, and the obedience of matter to fixed laws were manifestations of the same will and plan. Looking then into myself, I beheld energies coursing through the human person, the greater part of them beyond the realm of consciousness, tending constantly to preserve, to nourish, and to restore the weary body and soul. These forces were not of our own making, yet they had from their inception a legitimacy conferred upon them by another, the same as the one who moved the stars and made the lilacs bloom. As I turned home that evening, the darkness closing round me, I was conscious that I had discovered something that would introduce me to a new life, set off by a sharp hiatus from the past. That night, for the first time in years, I prayed. I knelt down in the chill blackness at my bedside, as my mother had taught me to do when I was a little boy, and attempted to raise my mind and heart toward him of whose presence and power I had become so unexpectedly aware. Avery Dulles goes on to say that this event, which was the beginning of his conversion, even though he didn't become a Catholic till he entered law school a couple years later, did not rest on some sort of rational proof. In his words, my own acceptance of the existence of God rested on something more like an intuition. It was as though I had seen, at least for an instant, the divine power at work, infusing the whole universe with goodness and being. I have recorded it as best I can. Now this well-known theologian, who as you know was raised to the rank of cardinal by Pope John Paul II a few years ago, and who just retired from an endowed chair in the Department of Theology at Fordham University, this theologian would be the first to admit that his experience along the banks of the River Charles held but a glimmer of the rich doctrine of creation and divine providence that has developed over the centuries. So too, in my own short paper, I can do no more than point to some of the most salient aspects of this doctrine. To begin, consider the opening verses of the Bible, book of Genesis. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now in the Bible, the Hebrew word that is here translated as created is regularly used of God alone, as distinct from another verb that could be translated as made, and that applies also to human activity. When we humans make something, there's always some material at hand out of which we fashion whatever we intend. God, however, according to the scriptures, 
creates merely by his word, as is abundantly clear by the frequently repeated phrase, and God said, throughout that first chapter of the book of Genesis. By the end of the second century before our common era, what later Christian theologians called creatio ex nihilo, that is, creation out of nothing, was already expressed by the Jewish author of the second book of Maccabees in the following words. Look at the heaven and the earth and see everything that is in them and recognize that God did not make them out of things that existed. And in the same way, the human race came into being. That's 2 Maccabees chapter 7. That God created merely by a word eventually had major implications for Christian thought. The fourth gospel, which is perhaps more commonly called the gospel according to John, significantly begins in a way that clearly reflects the opening words of the book of Genesis. John writes, In the beginning was the word. And he then proceeds to say that the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him and without him not one thing came into being. That's the first three verses of the fourth gospel. The prologue, that is this first chapter of the fourth gospel, goes on to say that this divine word became flesh in Jesus of Nazareth and lived among us. And we find here the seeds of what we would traditionally call a Trinitarian understanding of creation. In Christian language, God the Father creates through the word, otherwise called the Son of God, incarnate in Jesus the Christ. And the one whom we call the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is likewise involved in creation. When, for example, the book of Genesis says that in the beginning, a wind from God swept over the waters, the Hebrew word there translated as wind could just as well be translated as spirit or breath. And one of the longest and most beautiful of the Psalms, which we actually sang last night at Vespers, reflects this understanding when it says of living creatures, these all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the earth. And so it was natural, and I think even inevitable for Christians, to understand a verse like that from the psalm as referring to the Holy Spirit. And for that reason, creation we understand to be the work of the entire Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A question that I think worth pondering, at least briefly, is whether such creation implies a beginning in time, or perhaps better put, a beginning with time. Early Christian theologians like Irenaeus of Lyon and Augustine of Hippo certainly thought so. And in the Middle Ages, the Franciscan theologian Bonaventure believed that one could even prove philosophically that the world or the universe had a beginning in time. However, Bonaventure's still more influential contemporary, Thomas Aquinas, disagreed. Thomas, 
noting that in the most fundamental sense, creation refers to a relationship of utter dependence on God, even if that relationship is from all eternity, taught that it is only by revelation that we can know the world did not always exist. According to Thomas, this revelation was manifest in the opening words of the Bible. The Latin text he used could literally be translated as, in the beginning God created heaven and earth. And so Thomas assumed that that verse teaches that the world had a beginning in time. Some prominent theologians today, like Jürgen Moltmann in Germany and Ted Peters out at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, agree with him on this point. Peters writes that to reduce the doctrine of creation to what he calls a vague commitment about total dependence of the world upon God simply moves to a higher level of abstraction. We still need to ask, he says, just what does it mean for the world to owe its existence to God? A sensible answer, according to him, is that had God not acted to bring our space-time world into existence, there would only be nothing. However, other theologians of our own day are of a different mind. For example, Keith Ward of Oxford University writes that this notion that the universe had a beginning has usually been accepted only because of a particular reading or understanding of the first chapter of the book of Genesis. Ward writes, The doctrine of creation out of nothing simply maintains that there is nothing other than God from which the universe is made, and that the universe is other than God and wholly dependent on God for its existence. Well, despite disagreement among theologians on that particular point, there is a solid consensus that creation is fundamentally good, even as we believe God is goodness itself. Six times in that first chapter of the book of Genesis, we read that after God created one thing or another, God saw that it was good. And then in the final verse of the same chapter, this phrase is even intensified. Because there we read, God saw everything he had made, and indeed it was very good. Often, in the course of Christian history, saintly writers have exulted over this fact. And not only with respect to what are sometimes called the most momentous signs of God's love. The 4th century Syrian poet and hymnist, St. Ephraim, once composed some beautiful lines expressing his wonder and gratitude for even the smallest tokens of God's goodness. Ephraim wrote, Let us see those things that God does for us every day. How many tastes for the mouth? How many beauties for the eye? How many melodies for the ear and scents for the nostrils? Who is sufficient in comparison to the goodness of these little things? Who is able to make thousands of remunerations in a day? And nine centuries after Ephraim, St. Francis of Assisi echoed something of that delight in the goodness of creation, above all in his Canticle of Brother Son, which begins as follows. Praise be you, my Lord, with all your creatures, especially Sir Brother Son, who is the day and through whom you give us light, 
and he is beautiful and radiant with great splendor and bears a likeness of you, O mighty one. And praise be you, my Lord, through sister moon and the stars. In heaven you formed them clear and precious and beautiful. Now, much of what I've said up to this point refers to what is sometimes called original creation. That is, God's creating so-called in the beginning. But I think this must never be understood apart from ongoing creation. The Latin term for that is creatio continua. That is, God's providentially holding everything in existence. And I think maybe no one has expressed this in such memorable imagery as the 14th century Englishwoman Julian of Norwich, whose book of showings has become enormously popular in recent decades. In one of the best-known passages from her work, Julian writes, Our good Lord showed me a spiritual sight of his familiar love. I saw that he is to us everything which is good and comforting for our help. And in this sight I saw that he is everything which is good, as I understand. And he showed me something small, no bigger than a hazelnut, lying in the palm of my hand, as it seemed to me, and it was as round as a ball. I looked at it with the eye of my understanding and thought, what can this be? I was amazed that it could last, for I thought that because of its littleness, it would suddenly fall into nothing. And I was answered in my understanding, it lasts and always will last, because God loves it, and thus everything has being through the love of God. And then thirdly, in addition to original creation and ongoing creation, there is our Christian belief in what is called a new creation, or in Latin, creatio nova. Both Christians and Buddhists recognize that there is indeed suffering and incompleteness in the world, even if our respective understandings of the origin of suffering are not the same. For Christians, at least much of what is unsatisfactory about our life is due to that self-centered turning away from God that we traditionally call sin. Already St. Paul, in a well-known passage from his letter to the Romans, sensed that sin has affected not only us human beings who perpetrate it, but also the very world in which we live. In St. Paul's words, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now, I'll be the first to admit that a passage like that is open to various interpretations. Nowadays, most scientists believe that after some incalculable number of years, the forces of entropy will lead the entire universe to devolve into a low-grade state of radiation with a temperature approaching absolute zero, unable to support any kind of life.
Some theologians have found this scenario so troubling that they interpret Paul's words in Romans along with similar passages in the book of Isaiah about a new heavens and a new earth in a very literal sense as portending an eventual momentous renewal or redemption of all creation. I myself am much more cautious in this regard. As I once wrote elsewhere, one of the most constant themes in the spiritual teaching of all the world's religious traditions is that humans ought not to cling to possessions of one sort or another, and that things will in fact normally be more appreciated and enjoyed if one does not cling to them or yearn for them to have a permanence that is not appropriate. And I think this surely holds not just for objects of our immediate vicinity, but for the universe as a whole. The great English poet William Blake wrote in his short poem, Eternity, He who binds to himself a joy does the winged life destroy. But he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. And as I now approach the end of my presentation, there are two further issues that I think should be addressed. The first is whether there is something in Christian doctrine that tends to make us Christians ecologically irresponsible. Even those Christians who have written most ardently about the goodness of creation have recognized that it's not ultimate. And many of them have used expressions that do in fact denigrate the world around us. Julian of Norwich, for example, immediately after speaking of God as creator, protector and lover of all that God has made, goes on to write, God wishes to be known, and it pleases him that we should rest in him. For everything beneath him is not sufficient for us. And this is the reason why no soul is at rest until it has despised as nothing all things created. Now, this is the sort of language that led Karl Marx to speak of religion as the opium of the people. People yearning for pie in the sky by and by while despising material reality and being ultimately unconcerned. A related criticism is that the Christian tradition in particular is largely responsible for the exploitation of nature, as famously argued by Professor Lynn White, Jr., in an often anthologized article that first appeared in the journal Science back in 1967. White claimed, and I quote, In antiquity, every tree, every spring, every stream, every hill, hill had its own genius loci, its own guardian spirit. Before one cut down a tree or mined a mountain or dammed a brook, it was important to placate the spirit in charge of that particular situation and to keep it placated. But by destroying pagan animism, Christianity made it possible to exploit nature in a mood of indifference to the feelings of natural objects. And still others have asserted that when God, in the first chapter of Genesis, tells humans to fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and every living thing that moves on earth, 
this command gives us carte blanche to treat the world around us in any way that seems to be for our benefit and pleasure. Well, what are we to make of such charges? First, there has unquestionably been a world-denying quality in many expressions of Christian spirituality. Though this is so much less the case today that some people feel the pendulum has swung too far in the other direction. With regard to Professor White's main point, it's important to recognize that if the Judeo-Christian tradition rejected the notion that every natural object had its own guardian spirit, there is a real sense in which Judaism and Christianity are themselves animistic. When, for example, that 104th Psalm says that God's spirit renews the face of the earth, or when the Book of Wisdom affirms that, and I quote, the spirit of the Lord has filled the world, this surely implies that the many guardian spirits of ancient animism have given way to a single omnipresent spirit abiding in every creature. It was this awareness that led a mystic like the Jesuit scientist Pierre Teilhard Chardin to pray to God in the following words, Blazing spirit, fire, personal and supersubstantial, be pleased yet once again to come down and breathe a soul into the newly formed fragile film of matter with which this day the world is to be freshly clothed. Moreover, Teilhard and many others, including St. Francis, the patron saint of ecologists, have sensed the kinship that humans have with all other creatures, a kinship that led Francis to speak of brother sun and sister moon, of brother wolf, sister water, just as contemporary science has shown us that we share our DNA to some degree or other with every single living being on earth. As Jürgen Moltmann writes in his book, God and Creation, if the Holy Spirit is poured out on all creation, then the Spirit creates the community of created things with God and with each other, making it that fellowship of creation in which all things communicate with one another and with God, each in its own way. In its simplest terms, this means that we humans are not above nature, but part of it, and that Christians, no less than Buddhists, can rightly speak of a certain interdependence of everything on earth. Some have indeed interpreted that biblical charge to subdue the earth and have dominion over other creatures in a way that could justify exploitation. But the contemporary environmental crisis surely stems primarily from human greed or dire need and not from some scriptural text. After all, there are regions on earth that have suffered tremendous environmental degradation and yet have scarcely been touched by either the Jewish or Christian tradition. Our call as human beings, regardless of our particular religious tradition, is to be responsible stewards, mindful of our kinship with all other creatures, and our responsibility to care for them and for the earth itself with a love 
that reflects what we Christians believe to be God's own love for all creation. Our practical challenge is to allow this awareness to influence the way we actually live on our fragile planet. And lastly, there's the point I alluded to earlier. Is the Christian understanding of creation unavoidably at odds with Buddhist teaching? An entire book could be devoted to this topic, not least because there are different emphases within various Christian schools of thought as well as within Buddhism. It's worth noting, however, that for an important theologian like Thomas Aquinas, the world, whether or not it had a beginning, exists because of God, and ultimately this phrase, because of, needs to be understood as a final cause. That is what the Greeks called a telos, that is a goal or an aim. In other words, everything in the universe exists for the reason or purpose of moving toward this ultimate divine goal. And when one considers that in Buddhist teaching, all sentient beings have an inclination toward nirvana, there does appear a certain kind of parallelism that deserves further reflection and investigation. To be sure, the God whom Christians worship is primarily described in personal terms, whereas nirvana is not. But I think this difference is not absolute. Christian thinkers like Paul Tillich and Henri Lasseau have written of an impersonal aspect to the Godhead, while the Japanese Buddhist monk Shinran, who died in 1263 of our common era, claimed that the utmost we can say about ultimate reality before admitting its ineffability is that for us, the ultimate is like an infinitely compassionate father or mother. I'm very near the end, but let me just uh, interrupt a second here. The most beautiful thing I've seen here this week and probably will see even the rest of the days about the love of a father or mother, there's a little birdhouse not too far from here. And I was walking there the other day and there are two little birds inside it who poke their heads out. And the father and mother bird all day long are flying back and forth, bringing them insects to eat. And the, the, the father and mother don't stop. They're, they're just at it hour after hour. It's an amazing example of paternal and maternal love. And I think, you know, when, when Shinran talks of, of the love of a father or mother, or that when Christians speak of God as father or mother, it's well reflected in what these little birds are doing just a quarter mile from here. Anyway, regardless of whether or not we conclude that the Buddhist and Christian approaches to the question of creation are compatible, we can surely agree with Professor Perry schmidt Loikel, who teaches up at Glasgow, when he writes, both Christians and Buddhists could challenge and encourage one another to practice an attitude toward the world that combines loving involvement with selfless detachment. Buddhists may remind Christians that creation is not an end in itself, but has its goal in redemption. And Christians may remind Buddhists that the path to salvation and existence in salvation is acted out here in communion with all others and nowhere else.